Good morning. Um, this is uh, Didi. I'm the church planting pastor. It's like the you've gone to meet every single one of the pastors today. If you're new here, uh, it's kind of funny that we've all been up here at least once. I'm excited to bring this passage to you. It's one of my favorite passages. I've had a lot of fun studying it and preparing. Uh, let me ask you to stand as we read God's word together. This is the word of the Lord. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They went at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to, to the tomb and found it just as the woman, uh, woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all, um, in, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray, Lord, for the blessing of your word. Lord, we pray that you would apply it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, if there's any words that I speak today that are not from you, may they fall to the ground. But may you bless your people as they listen with their hearts and with their ears. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. One of the songs of the year has got to be the song, If the World Was Ending. I don't know if you know this song. Perhaps if you listen to any one of the pop radio stations, you probably have heard it a billion times already this year. I think it resonates with this awful year of pain and uncertainty that we're all going through. And, and, it, and I think it resonates with people in the sense of what they're experiencing in their pain, but also what they believe might be a solution to that pain. The song was inspired by the songwriter as he, uh, after he experienced um, a, an earthquake. And so the song is this imaginary conversation uh, between, two, between a couple, it's a duet, it's between a couple um, in the aftermath of an earthquake. And so this is how the chorus goes, and trust me, you don't want me to sing it, but I will read the chorus to you. I know, you know, we know, you weren't down for forever, but it's fine. I know, you know, we know, we weren't meant for each other, and it's fine. 
But if the world was ending, you'd come over, right? You'd come over and you'd stay the night. Would you love me for the hell of it? All our fears would be irrelevant. If the world was ending, you'd come over, right? The sky be falling while I'd hold you tight. No, there wouldn't be a reason why we would even have to say goodbye. If the world was ending, you'd come over, right? You'd come over, right? You'd come over, you'd come over, you'd come over, right? In the verses of the song, we get painted this picture of a couple whose history was essentially they hooked up one night. At best, they had a short fling. And in the chorus, we're really told that in the midst of the uncertainty of a life and death situation, there's this hope that maybe they could get together one more time and hold each other even as they die, perhaps. It's this picture of romantic nihilism. Somehow nothing seems to matter. There's no meaning at all. And yet at the same time, perhaps there's this one person who would come over um, in a moment of crisis and make everything all right. The song is meant to be romantic, but at the same time, it really feels haunting to me. It feels haunting because the hope is so uncertain. It's a question mark throughout the song. You'd come over, right? So in, in the best case scenario for this couple, the, the hope is that someone would come over, and yet it makes me sad and, and it feels haunting again because the best case scenario is that, again, maybe there'd be one more chance to be together. It's not a hope of being deeply loved or be deeply known by a person. It's just perhaps we can be together one more time. It's haunting because the hope is uncertain and underwhelming. In today's gospel account, we, two, we meet two disciples who are on a road to Emmaus in the midst of uncertainty, pain, and fear. They're not sure what the solution is given what has happened. And this story that meets us in the midst of 2020 where we too are feeling pain and uncertainty. Let me just give a little bit of context for this passage. It's one of three uh, uh, resurrection appearances in the gospel of Luke. And it's the, the first one where Jesus appears himself. We had already seen in the Gospel of Luke that uh, these angels had appeared to three women at the tomb, at the empty tomb. And these, these um, angels confirmed to Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Joanna that the empty tomb and these discarded linen cloths were indeed a sign that Jesus has risen from the dead and that they should have hope in that. And it is a funny story for us as we read this story and listen to it with us because the reader, us, knows more than the participants and the disciples in the story. The joke is on them. We know that Jesus has risen. We know that the disciples are talking to Jesus and they don't know themselves. We want to yell through the pages to Cleopas and his friend, look more closely. It's Jesus, dude. How could you not recognize him? So as we go through this today, I think you'll see the surprise in that as well. But here's the main point, just to, for you to grapple with as we go through it. The wildness and graciousness of the resurrected Lord Jesus is worthy of our hope and witness. The wildness and graciousness of the resurrected Lord Jesus is worthy of our hope and witness. So let's first take a look at the wildness of Jesus. We have to ask this question again. What's the point of this meeting of Jesus and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? First of all, we know it's a significant story. It's actually the longest continuous story in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus here is confirming his supernatural resurrection with a supernatural appearance to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. 
Jesus is confirming his death and resurrection as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets' words and way of ministry. He has come to redeem Israel, but not only Israel, but all the nations. We also see that it is an odd story. Why did Jesus choose to reveal himself so gradually to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Why is Jesus so mysterious about it? Why does verse 16 say their eyes were kept from recognizing him? The suggestion in the text seems to be that somehow, for some reason, God kept the disciples from recognizing Jesus on this long seven-mile walk to Emmaus. The wildness of Jesus is in the oddness of this story and the mysteriousness of this story. And, but first, you have to put yourself in their shoes. You've got to imagine the disappointment, the disillusionment, the despondence, even the despair that they felt as they walked away from Jerusalem, away from all that has happened in Jerusalem in the last few days. Perhaps they were thinking, I thought Jesus was going to redeem us. I thought he was the savior. I thought he was gonna set us free. I thought he was the real deal, but now he's dead. Now he's been crucified. But then again, he said he was gonna raise from the dead on the third day and these women, they went to the tomb and they, they found an empty tomb. So I just don't know. You know, we, we say these kinds of things in our hearts today too, as Christians. Perhaps we say to ourselves, I thought Jesus was gonna save me. I thought Jesus was gonna set me free. I thought that he was gonna bring me a better life. I thought he was the real deal, but now they say the cross is a myth, that the resurrection is not possible but I've seen God fulfill his promises. I've, I've heard of people testifying to his supernatural workings in their life. So I, I just, I don't know anymore. The wildness of Jesus is seen here in this passage in, in that he had to reveal that he wasn't just another prophet or even a great prophet like Moses, that he wasn't just a political savior for a nation. Jesus can't be contained by the box of expectations that his disciples had put on him. They would not be able to see him or experience him as he truly is until their expectations were completely rewired. The wildness of Jesus here is seen in that he would keep them from recognizing him until they could eventually more deeply understand and experience the resurrected Jesus. I want to ask you, are you willing to wrestle with the wildness of Jesus? But let's look at the graciousness of Jesus in this passage too. I think the oddness of the story keeps us from seeing the graciousness of Jesus with the disciples, but in Jesus' interaction with them, his grace is, is just um, throughout this passage. The fact is, is that Jesus met them on the road to Emmaus, again, away from Jerusalem, away from the promises that he made that he would rise from the dead on the third day. And he met them on this road that was their road of disappointment, disillusionment, despondence, and despair. That in and of itself is a grace. Jesus will meet you in your valley in your lowest of lows, in your rock bottom, in those moments where you find yourself longing to eat the food of filthy pigs, and then God whispers in your ear like he did to the prodigal son, you know, hired servants eat better than this in your father's house. 
One commentator, Philip Ryken, said it this way, and I, I love these words. He says, he, that is Jesus, will overtake us along life's road, falling in stride with our sorrow and confusion. Then he will ask what we know about him, hoping that we will listen to the gospel and see him as savior. This conversation that the disciples have with what is seemingly a stranger on the road is so full of irony. The stranger, Jesus, um, asked them, what are they talking about? What is it that has happened in Jerusalem the last few days? They're talking to Jesus and they don't even know it. They're talking to Jesus about Jesus and they don't even know it. They're talking to Jesus and they incredulously tell Jesus, are you the only one who doesn't know what has happened in Jerusalem? It's like they're saying with veiled, sarcasm, veiled sarcasm, duh, have you been under a rock all this time in Jerusalem? How could you not know what's going on? And in the irony of that conversation and that accusation is the graciousness of Jesus. He is actually the only one who is truly in the know about what has happened. He is the only one who truly knows what it's like under the flogging whip, under the asphyxiating cross, in the oppressing grave, and in the power of the rising from the dead. He is the only one truly in the know. And in that irony is the grace of God. The graciousness of Jesus is in his patient journey with these disciples, illumining to them what the scriptures always had taught about Jesus throughout the Old Testament and setting up this opportunity for the disciples to invite him into their home and to sit at the table and fellowship with them and more importantly, to invite them intimately into their own hearts. And just like that in verse 31, it says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. The wildness of Jesus meets the graciousness of Jesus in that moment. His gradual revelation of himself is also the graciousness of God. His wildness is not cruelty. It allows them to learn about trusting God's promises. The disciples have been told many times about what Jesus would have to go through, but yet they could not conceive how those things would come to pass. And so the gradual revelation drives home to them vividly and viscerally the promises of God's word and how they will still come to pass and that they are called to trust them. And they had to go through that because they were about to be sent on a greater mission, far greater than they could imagine themselves. For these two disciples, the journey on the road to Emmaus would be this landmark moment of God supernaturally opening their eyes. And it will be woven into their testimony and their witness of Jesus from that point on. And after they experienced, again, their eyes being opened and understanding who they had walked with for all those miles, they then rushed back to Jerusalem to tell the rest of the disciples what they experienced. But when they get there, they find that Peter himself had already seen Jesus himself. And so they excitedly share their story. Such an amazing story. And so we make that turn now to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And we come really to the question of the day. 
because we're in the series, right? Answering Jesus. And the question of the day is, was it not necessary that Christ himself should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus is actually not looking for an answer from the disciples or, or, or from us in this question. It's a rhetorical question. And clearly the answer to this rhetorical question is yes, it was necessary for Jesus to suffer these things and enter into his glory. Jesus' story is the hero's story that defines all stories, including our own. And the arc of God's story in this fallen world is, is that it requires the drama of Jesus' suffering and dying and descending and then ascending into heaven after his resurrection to the glory of God the Father for justice and mercy to kiss at their cross. But the rhetorical question also assumes that the disciples and along with us cry out unanimously this answer to that question. No, it's not necessary for Jesus to suffer these things. It is not necessary for our hero and by extension us to have to suffer, to be humiliated, to be defeated. We don't want to suffer like our savior. We don't want to be losers like our Lord. Hashtag winning is our preferred motto. But like the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus too had to face suffering, rejection, and even death in order to defeat the power of death. He had to be defeated in order to defeat the power of death and darkness. We all want to enter into glory with him, but we're not sure if we want to die in order to live or lose in order to gain. The resurrected Jesus shows us that he is worth it. His wildness means we get to spend eternity getting to know the wonder and joy of who he is. The graciousness of Jesus means we get to spend eternity experiencing the belonging, the acceptance, the intimacy, the passion, the illumination that the disciples felt as they walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus as they sat at the table with Jesus and ate with him uncertainty clarified and hope restored. And again, we remember they, they ran back to share and to bear witness to what they had experienced. The wildness and graciousness of the resurrected Jesus Christ is worthy of our witness and hope. And let's make a turn towards application now that we walk through the passage. As Daniel said earlier, in this election week, some are, some are happy, some are sad, some are glad, some are angry, some are just confused and numb about the way politics is in our nation today. But what is the journey that you are on with Jesus that includes and transcends this particular election? Jesus is wild. You can't contain him with your political platform, whether that's Democratic, Republican, Libertarian, Green, or Yeezy. You can't contain Jesus with your political platform. The Jewish disciples of Jesus were frustrated at their religious and political leaders for killing the one they thought would bring redemption. I'm a son of a politician and I will say this is a son of a politician. Don't you think your Democratic Party or your Republican Party would kill Jesus if it served their agenda? That's a rhetorical question too. We are always tempted to make God in our own image. 
but we have to allow Jesus to be who he is. And here's the thing. Jesus is wild and gracious far more than we can imagine. And both his wildness and his graciousness is scandalous to us. Repeatedly, we show we want Jesus to be less wild than he is. And what I mean by that is we often say to ourselves in some way, shape, or form, Jesus, why are you so unpredictable in the way you work? Repeatedly, we show we want Jesus to be less gracious than he is because we will say repeatedly again, Jesus, why would you forgive that person? Forgive me, that's great, but don't forgive that person. Increasingly in our pluralistic, secular age, we look to politics and our politicians to deliver us from our problems we see and face in this world. Christians are no less susceptible to that tendency. We despair that our politicians can't get along long enough to do good for our society, and yet at the same time, we long for our representatives to win, to push through the change that we want. And as Christians, we may have been challenged to, to not look to uh, politicians as our saviors or not look to politics or make politics an idol. And those things may be true for some Christians. But I think there's a deeper level to which we must all go as Christians where we can find Jesus rather than an elected leader. What I think is more true is that we all long for the world to be made right. And we can't stand that longing. We all long for the world to be made right, but we can't stand that longing. We want that longing removed or fulfilled. And so we will take a flawed candidate because it sort of feels like longing fulfilled. We'll remove ourselves from the political process because it can remove our longing for something more. But Jesus asks us to wait in the wildness of his working while we live in this age of the already not yet. He has already brought in his kingdom and yet is not yet fully realized. We are on this journey to experience our, experiencing our longings completely fulfilled by Jesus and through Jesus. And we're on this journey for Jesus to reveal himself more and more fully to us. And we're on this journey for eternity. We're just at the beginning of it. But it's going to be done in his timing, not ours. By faith, in his already accomplished work on the cross, we trust him. He is already fully ours by our union with him and we're just catching up to that step by step. Yet gradually in our painful longing for more, we will experience his fulfillment of all those promises in him. And in our longing, we find that the wildness and graciousness of Jesus is the food that we always wanted to eat. If the world was ending, Jesus would meet us on that road and walk with us into eternity. He would hold us into eternity. He would indeed make our fears irrelevant and he would be down for forever. He has power over sin and death and he calls us to himself to be his beloved. Our hope is certain and overwhelming. 
we wait with hope in Christ and we bear witness to that hope to a watching world. So I call you church, let us bear witness to the worthiness of the wildness and graciousness of our resurrected Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our sin perhaps is our imagination is too small and we are willing to take small answers and solutions to great problems. And only you are greater, Lord. And Lord, and, and, and you call us to trust your timing, your ways. Help us to do so, Lord, in this world. And may we bear witness to the worthiness of this hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.